Just as a reminder, as you pull out your Bible and turn to the Gospel of John, chapter 2, just as a reminder on the Apostles' Creed that C in Catholic is a small c, which means universal, the universal church, the universal Christian church. A lot of people stumble over that word, and I just want to clarify that. We're going to be looking at uh, chapter 2, the second half, starting in uh, verse 12 through the end of the chapter. In World Magazine, uh, several years ago, there was an article called uh, Tender Toughness. It was written by a guy named Joel Belts. And he says this. He was reading the Wall Street Journal one day in the editorial section, and a sentence jumped out at him. He, say, he describes it as an electric expression that he will never forget. The writer in the Wall Street Journal said, The people, people want to be lightly governed by strong governments. People like to be lightly governed by strong governments. That belts goes on to say, that's what you've wanted since you were a small child. You've wanted your dad to be big and strong and able to do anything and everything you can think of. Except that when he deals with you. <laughs> to be gentle and tender. You want a policeman on the tough corner in a bad neighborhood to be able to handle anything and everything that comes his way. But you also want that same police officer to hoist you onto his shoulders and help you find your parents when you're lost. Lots of muscle, lots of restraint. There's an innate yearning in almost all of us for that rare combination. And that rare combination is in display in our text today. As Jesus shows that he is the lion of the tribe of Judah and at the same time, the sacrificial lamb of God. Let's look at our text together, starting in verse 12. After this, after the miracle in Cana, after this he went down to Capernaum with his mother and brothers and his disciples, and he stayed there a few days. When it was almost time for the Jewish Passover, Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple courts he found men selling cattle, sheep, and doves and others sitting at tables exchanging money. So he made a whip out of cords and drove all from the temple area, both sheep and cattle. He scattered the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. To those who sold doves, he said, Get out of here! How dare you turn my father's house into a market? His disciples remembered that it was written, Zeal for your house will consume me. Then the Jews demanded of him, What miraculous sign can you show us to prove your authority to do all this? Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple, and I will, be ra and I will raise it again in three days. The Jews replied, it has taken 46 years to build this temple, and you're going to raise, raise it in three days? But the temple he spoke of was his body. 
After he raised from the dead, his disciples recalled what he said. Then they believed the scripture and the words that Jesus had spoken. Now, while he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many people saw the miraculous signs he was doing and believed in his name. But Jesus would not entrust himself to them, for he knew all men. He did not need men's testimony about man, for he knew what was in a man. Father God, I pray that you will speak through me to your people. Encourage, challenge, admonish, correct. In Jesus' name, amen. So, for the beginning of his earthly ministry in Cana, he goes down to Capernaum. And then, after a certain amount of time, he goes and makes one of the three pilgrimages to Jerusalem. Everybody was required to make three pilgrimages each year to Passover, to the Feast of Tabernacles, and to the Day of Atonement. And so this is one of the great pilgrimage feasts. And he walks into the temple, this crowded temple, and is greeted with commercialism gone wild. Sellers of animals for sacrifice, money changers, uh, tables set up around to change the money of the different currencies. Now, let's be fair. These things were necessary. I mean, we, they didn't have cars. They didn't have SUVs where you could put large amounts of animals in there for your sacrifice. So if you came from a long distance away, it was okay to have animals for sacrifice that you could buy to go into the temple. I think it's also fair to say, you know, if you're coming from all the different provinces and countries from around there, it's fair that that you have money changers to pay the temple tax. It wasn't that he was objecting about doing those things. he He was furious about where they were doing it. It was appropriate that they do it, but an inappropriate place. And that's what kindled Jesus' anger, his wrath, in the temple. And in Jesus' reaction, we're shown a side of Jesus that many are uncomfortable with, the Lion of Judah. This is the side of Jesus that he shows here. He upends the tables. He yells at the people. He, he drives the animals out with makeshift whips. This is a a violent scene, a loud scene. And it's always interesting to see how people react to that. It's always actually interesting to see how people portray Jesus on screen. I mean, there are probably two dozen movies about Jesus' life out there, probably more. But if you look at them, you always get a perspective of Jesus, how the director pretty much sees Jesus. You know, either as this you know, soft-spoken, angelic, meek and mild and tender and compassionate, love full of grace. Either you get that picture, like Jesus of Nazareth, Zeffirelli's Jesus of Nazareth, or you, you, you get the other extreme too, with like the last temptation of Christ, with that gravelly, gruff, hard Jesus. We all have a picture of Jesus in our mind. 
We all have a, a side that we tend to lean on when we think of Jesus. But Jesus, in the first half of our text anyway, sometimes makes us uncomfortable. That picture of Jesus. When I read this text, I envision Jesus really yelling, really furious. You know, you see in the text, the, the, the um, interpreters, the translators, have, have put exclamation points next to those, the imperatives that are sent there, said there, the weight of that. And I see Jesus as, as running back and forth. I see him as sweating during this scene, this prolonged scene probably. I see him hoarse afterwards because of what he's been yelling. Many people are uneasy with this picture of Jesus, but we have to come to, what we have to come to grips with is this Jesus, this lion of the tribe of Judah, is very consistent throughout the Bible. Throughout the many Old Testament prophets, we see God chastising Israel, don't we? I mean, if, you, if you're a reader of the Old Testament prophets at all, you have to see this. He is chastising. He is using imagery that is very harsh. You, you hear his wrath, his anger, his fury through those Old Testament prophets. It's like, for example, in Hosea 5. I was reading there this week. And this is what God says to Israel. Sound the trumpet in Gibeah, the horn of Ramah. Raise the battle cry of beth Lead on, O Benjamin. Ephraim will be laid waste on the day of reckoning. Among the tribes of Israel, I will proclaim this is certain. Judah's leaders are like those who move boundary stones. He's furious that they have moved the boundary stones that he has set. I will pour out my wrath on them like flood water. Ephraim is oppressed, trampled in judgment, intent on pursuing idols. I am, and this is the Lord speaking, I am like a moth to Ephraim, like rot to the people of God. For I will be like a lion to Ephraim, like a great lion to Judah. I will tear them to pieces and go away. I will carry them off with no one to rescue them. That's, that's the God of the Old Testament. And what we like to do is we like to bifurcate that. We like to say, well, that's the God of the Old Testament. The God of the New Testament, shown through Jesus, is Jesus meek and mild. It's baby. It's soft. And what I'm presenting to you today is, it's the same God. You see his fury here. You see his wrath. I think when I read the Hosea 5 passage, I think of the metaphors that are used there. Moth eating away, rot, wrath, floodwaters, and of course the lion image. Lions are terrifying. I I don't know if I've told you this. I think I might have at one point, but years ago we took, as a family, we went to the Columbus, Ohio Zoo and we were wandering around and there was the lion paddock and you kind of walked up in between two walls to a glass, and then you could look out and, and find the lions. So we, we were walking up, and we couldn't see any of the lions. We were looking out, 
And they were over in the corner behind the wall here. And all of a sudden, the male lion roared. And it was terrifying. I don't know if you guys remember that. It was terrifying. It was right there. And we startled. We pulled back. A lion is terrifying. It's interesting that the Apostle Peter used the lion image, metaphor, to describe our great enemy, Satan. Remember he says in chapter 5 of his first book, the devil prowls around us like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Peter was groping for, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, for a terrifying image. And lion was it. Well, here Jesus is the lion of Judah. He is the lion of Hosea 5. He explodes the meek and mild picture in our minds because he is the God of both the Old Testament and the New. This Jesus, whose heart is broken over the one sheep, so broken that he goes and leaves the 99 to find the one, is the same Jesus who gives the seven woes to the Pharisee. Woe to you! Woe to you, woe to you, you whitewashed sepulchers. You clean tombs on the outside, dead on the inside. This is the Jesus who shows infinite love and compassion throughout the Gospels that heals time after time after time after time again. We read how his, his heart was touched and he showed compassion, showed compassion, showed compassion. This is the same Jesus who turns to Peter and says, get behind me, Satan. You don't have the things of God in mind. It's the same Jesus who weeps at the tomb of Lazarus. Who weeps as he comes into Jerusalem for the third and final time. On his way to the cross and says, oh, Jerusalem, if only you had turned. That same merciful and compassionate and loving Jesus is the same Jesus who we read in Revelation 19 will come back and it will be a terrifying, furious, wrathful Jesus we will see. There he's seen as riding on a white horse, coming with justice and truth, it says, eyes blazing like fire, his robe dipped in blood. Out of his mouth comes a sharp two-edged sword. And it says, it ends there with, he treads the wine presses of the fury of God Almighty. Same Jesus. And that man walks into the temple and looks around at his father's house and he's furious. C.S. Lewis obviously picked up on this in the Narnia Chronicles with Aslan being the lion. What a perfect image. What a biblical image. He's soft and he's kind and he's loving towards Lucy. But we're told in there, he's not safe. Aslan brings judgment and justice and we see flashes of Zanger throughout those books. And he Wright, the scholar, wrote, the biblical doctrine of God's wrath is rooted in the doctrine of God as the good, wise, loving creator who hates, yes, hates, 
and hates implacably anything that spoils, defaces, distorts, or damages his beautiful creation. And he walks into the temple and he sees distortion. He sees damage. And he's furious. And that's why he's angry. It's interesting. You can tell a lot about a person by what they hate, can't you? You can tell a lot about a person by what they hate. I went on uh, eHarmony this week because I wanted to see what are the questions that they recommend for people that are going on these first dates. How do you get to know somebody? They have recommendations, they have pages of recommendations, and they have lists of questions. Questions like, not bad questions, who's been the biggest influence in your life? What kinds of things really make you laugh? What's your biggest goal? What was your family like growing up? How do you like to spend a Saturday? The question I did not see on their list was, what do you hate? That's a really good question. Married couples, that's a great question to ask this afternoon. You've never asked it. What do you hate? Because you can tell a lot about a person by what they dislike. What does Jesus' anger tell us about him? Jesus hates anything that will distract us from worshiping him. Anything. He hates when the world overcrowds our worship. When the world encroaches in to that sacred, sacred place that he has created. Now, we don't make our sanctuary a marketplace, but the question, the application question is, how do we distort our worship? How, what kind of distractions do we allow in? What kind of worldly overcrowding do we allow into our hearts when we come to worship? For some, it's the worries of life. You come and you sit down, and whatever's happening in your life, that's where your heart is. That's where your mind is. You're thinking of what you could have done, you should have done. Mistakes that were made, maybe. Perhaps if, if, if you're a married couple, it's the fight that you've just had. And it overcrowds your heart. I want you to let you know that Jesus hates that. He wants all of you. For some of you, it's the impatience of the future. Your minds aren't here. They're not back there, but they're up there. What you have to get done next week. What you want to do later on this Sunday. You know, I know you guys are going to laugh, but really the litmus test of this is at this time of year, is football. What would happen if we started worshiping at noon and we went to 1.30 and the Patriots game started at 1? What would your heart be like? I knew you were going to laugh, but let me tell you, God hates that. Maybe the tables in your 
heart's temple are the reason you're even here. Why are you here right now? For some, it could be social. I like the social aspect. For some, it could be the feeling. It gives me a good feeling to be here. It gives me a feeling of safety. For some, it's ritual. This is what I do Sunday morning. For some, it's out of dry obedience. Kids, you have to watch your own hearts in this. Why are you here? Is it because mom and dad make me come? God wants all of you. He wants your heart. Jesus will overturn all these tables in our heart. He wants us to fall in love with worshiping him. You know why? Because he loves to be worshipped. He loves to be worshipped. And he deserves to be worshipped. And what God is making right in us as redeemed people, as regenerate people, what God is making right in us is creating, rewiring us to do our central purpose, which is worship him. Today and next Sunday and the Sunday after that, he's slowly, progressively sanctifying your heart, rewiring your heart so that you will fulfill the main purpose he created you guys and me, which is to worship him. That's why we're created. And he wants you and me to love worshiping. I don't know if you read the article we gave out of Parenting in the Pews by uh, John and Noel Piper. We gave that out last Saturday. It's up on our website now. About Parenting in the Pews. And one of the lines in there just struck me. And I know it's one of these lines that I'll, I'll just remember forever. He said, You cannot pass on to your children what you do not have yourself. No, we deeply desire to pass on our faith. We deeply desire to pass on a love of what we're doing now to our children. What Piper is saying is you can't pass that on if you don't have it yourself. In other words, if you're not in love with worshiping God, you can't pass that on to your children. What you will pass on is behavior modification. What you will pass on is dry obedience. What you will pass on is weekly ritual. But not their hearts. Jesus' hate shows what Jesus loves so much so that it sparked in the disciples' minds at the time, oh, he's just like what the Messiah is going to be like. In Psalm 69, he's going to be zealous. He's going to be out of control for love for Christ, for God and worship of God. It says right there, zeal for his house will consume me, it says. In verse 17, Jesus was zealous for the sanctity and priority of worship. Jesus is zealous for your heart and my heart in worship. We might, we might like to be governed lightly, 
But the Lion of Judah wants to overturn those tables in your heart, whatever they are. But just as the opening article describes, we want strength, we also want tenderness, don't we? We want a lion and we also want a lamb. And that's what Jesus shows in the second half of our text. He shows how he is the lamb as well as the lion. After what Jesus had done, it says there in verse 18, then the Jews demanded of him, hey, 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 hold on. What miraculous sign can you show us to prove your authority to do this? It's interesting. When you read that, did you, did you go, that's an interesting question. Why didn't they just come and say, hey, 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 who are you? Get out of here. They said, no, 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 what authority do you have to tell us to do this? As I read that, I go, well, they must have, they must have known what they were doing was inappropriate. <laughs> so tell us what authority you have to tell us that we're wrong and we'll leave. They knew what they were doing is wrong. And Jesus, standing in the temple, in the temple of Herod, says, okay, you want a sign? Here's the sign. Verse 19. Destroy this temple, and in three days, I'll raise it up again. Destroy this temple. He gives his messianic credentials right there. He gives a veiled reference to his... Death and resurrection, doesn't he? Now, we have to understand that Jesus helps us, his, his readers, understand this. In verses 21 and 22, we see that with the temple that he had spoken of was his body. John, John is giving running commentary on this. At that time, they had no idea what he meant. They had no idea what he was talking about. They thought he was talking about Herod's temple. Huge, amazing temple made of stone. And it wasn't until they received the Spirit that they understood. See, what we have to understand is that the gospel is always veiled. The gospel is always veiled. The significance of Jesus' death and burial and resurrection is always veiled. Unless you have eyes to see unless you have the spirit that gives you understanding. That's the meaning of all those miracles that he did, and we will talk about one in the Gospel of John, where he made blind people see. All he is there, just doing there is, is enacting the spiritual reality. You cannot see, you cannot understand spiritually without help. Person cannot understand the gospel unless they are given the understanding. It was amazing to me. I think it was last week. I had the privilege to share the gospel with a woman. She came, and I, I've gotten to the point where I, I don't try and be snappy anymore. I don't try and you know use the relationship. I just say. I just want to tell you something. I want to tell you the gospel. Is it okay if I tell you the gospel? She said, yeah. And I told her, I said, you know, we're all sinful. We all sin. You know, you you sin, I sin. And I said, I came to a place where I, I realized I needed a savior. 
I couldn't save myself. I don't know if you feel the same way. I can't save myself. No matter what I do, I keep on sinning. And I realized I, I need forgiveness. And I found forgiveness in Jesus Christ. Because although I can't live the perfect life, you know, he can live the perfect life. He did live the perfect life. And he earned heaven, where I can never earn heaven. And instead of just taking his righteousness and leaving, what he did is he, he went to the cross and he took the penalty that my sin deserves. He took death for me so that I could live. He absorbed my sin and he gave me heaven. Does that make sense? She kind of nodded and I said, and, and three days later he rose from the dead to prove that it's all true. Do you get what I'm saying? And you know what her, her response was? And this is, this is why it's so veiled. She said, I'm going to try to come to church on Sunday. I was pointing to Jesus as the temple and she was looking at the temple. Isn't that amazing? I had... Coming to church was the last thing on my mind. And she got out of that. Not that she might need forgiveness. But I have to come to church, I guess. See, the gospel's veiled. The gospel is totally veiled. And that's what all the Jews could see. They could see the place and not the person. What Jesus was really saying is, listen, we're standing in this temple, but look at me. I'm the fulfillment of the temple. You come here to seek reconciliation. Reconciliation is found in me. Through me, you're reconciled to God. In me, and not in this temple, you're justified. That your sins are paid for. But that was veiled to them. Add to that, and think of this, why were the two and a half plus million people coming to Jerusalem for the Passover? (laughs) They were there with the lamb, the sacrificial lamb on their mind. That's why they were coming. The miraculous rescue from death, the deliverance from slavery, the freedom that was given, all centered on the Lamb. And Jesus, in a veiled way, was pointing to himself and saying, Guys, I'm the Lamb that will be destroyed. I'm the Passover Lamb. See, the reason that Jesus used the destruction of the temple as a metaphor is because the way back to God is really radical. You know, they looked around and said, this is impossible. You know what? It is impossible without Christ, without an innocent lamb being slain. In the conclusion of Belts' article, he writes this, in the final analysis, people want to be lightly governed by strong government because that's how God governs us. Isn't that beautiful? He is the lion, and he is the lamb. Let's pray.
Father, I thank you for your word. I pray, Spirit, that you will apply it perfectly, as you always do. In Jesus' name, amen.